Welcome to the Marketing Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Barker. On this episode, Roger Dooley, a serial entrepreneur and expert on using brain and behavior research to boost sales, customer experience, marketing, and corporate culture, is back with us. For those joining us for the first time, check out our previous episode to understand how Roger leveraged his engineering background to become a serial entrepreneur and a best-selling author. Today, however, we discuss neuromarketing and how marketers can use it for consumer persuasion and to improve user experience. So I wanted to talk to you about, because I'll tell you, one of the, the first books that I ever read of yours was the neuromarketing, right? And that was one that really had a profound effect on me just on how the, the persuasion, like through the lens and, and, and just how that, like, you know, when we talk about like how it affects the, the brain and how people make certain decisions when it comes to marketing. So I wanted to talk about just about that. I want to talk to you about the, the consumer persuasion and, and talk about uh, neuromarketing and like, and how you jumped into the space because you were one of the originators that actually started talking about that. I mean, if not the original, and I wanted to, I, I've always wanted to kind of ask you these questions. Cause when I've read the book, I was just like, it just blew me away on, on how it all works and how it all comes together. But I wanted to, to talk to you a little bit. So how did you like, how did you pretty much start the space? I mean, what, when did you realize that you're like, wait, there's something here. Well, I guess, uh, you know, that is sort of a typical entrepreneurial journey story because everyone is different. <laughs> That's what makes it typical. Uh, and, to, and normally there is a lot of uh, weird uh, uh, sideways or diagonal motion. Things never proceed in a linear fashion or rarely proceed in a linear fashion. So true. Uh, after my one venture uh, that I was talking about, uh, uh, my original partner and I exited the business where our third partner continued on primarily in the B2B space because... Mm -hmm. Uh, our strength and, mo and interest really was in the direct marketing space. And part of our uh, getting the bank uh, off our backs was to wind down the catalog business. Mm -hmm. And we didn't really uh, see a, a good way of continuing in that business. And uh, so we, we separated from that. And uh, I, after a little bit of sort of fumbling around with a, a couple of, you know, sort of an entrepreneurial search, like when suddenly you're saying, oh, do, because uh, it wasn't uh, this you know sort of carefully planned uh, uh, process. Uh, I co-founded a business in the IT outsourcing space, hmm. and uh, that business uh, probably ran for I don't know uh, nine or nine or ten years. Uh, most most of that time independent. Then ultimately, uh, we uh, were acquired by a somewhat larger business, uh, and I continued with them for a few years after that. Uh, and uh, that. Uh, uh, that too was in uh, education. We were there for the Y2K uh, <laughs> boom and then bust. Uh, uh, so, but uh, after after that, uh, or while really while that was going on, I really got a few other things going. I, I'm always I'm a I'm big on hobbies and side gigs, if only for your own amusement, if only to uh, keep your mind stimulated and doing some other yeah. stuff. And at that point, I really had a, a, a couple of other side gigs going. Uh, back uh, uh, during that same time period, while I still had the other business going, I, we had, uh, my, well, my partner in that business, my original partner had an e-commerce company that wasn't getting a lot of sales. And he said, gee, can you help me figure this out? Because uh, it's, <laughs> it's not going well. Yeah. And uh, I dug into SEO. This was in the really early days of SEO and search engine optimization. And uh, did my homework for a while and started working on uh, uh, his website, or actually it was our website. He brought me into that on an equity basis. <laughs> and uh, we had like five times the traffic in a matter of months. And uh, 
at that point, SEO was relatively straightforward. Even then, it was always changing, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it wasn't quite as complicated because the algorithms were simple. It's just that they, they kept changing. You just had to sort of decode them and change uh, what you were doing <laughs> to adapt to them. But nevertheless, um, we said, well, this is a service that um, we should offer to clients in our IT business because most of them didn't get it. And uh, that got me into, into digital marketing, basically, mm -hmm. where we never were that successful in selling SEO services, primarily because we were so early. It was when people don't know that they need you. Yeah. Uh, and you've got to explain to them why they need you. Uh, and then I say, well, no, my, my web developer did that. And they say, no, your web developer didn't do that. Look, look at your Trust results me. in Google. Look here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, well, okay. And they go back and they beat on the web developer says, okay, now they really did it. And, you know, so like 12 months later, you have to go back and say, look, they really didn't do it again. Yeah. And that was not a great, uh, a great success, but it did teach uh, me a lot about digital marketing. And so I, with a, a couple of other people who were college experts, I started a college website, a college admissions website uh, to help parents and students through that process. Cause I had just mm -hmm. gone through it with both of my kids. And uh, at that point it was really arcane. There were very few good books on the topic. Uh, there were no good websites uh, there. Uh, and so we started basically an information site with a forum. Uh, and uh, this ended up over the years becoming a, a rather sizable venture. Uh, it became the biggest site in the space. Uh, ultimately, we were hitting uh, 30, 40 million page views in a good month. Wow. And uh, we sold that to part of the Daily Mail group. And I joined them for a while uh, as uh, uh, their VP of digital marketing and uh, trying to help them sort of, they, they were a very good company with some very smart developers, but didn't have that sort of uh, uh, on the ground digital web savvy to figure out what, uh, how to get the users to your site and how to keep them engaged. And so it was, it was really a good marriage because they had a, a great ad sales force. They quadrupled uh, my old company's revenue uh, in like the first 12 months. Wow. So it was, it was one of those acquisitions that really, uh, at least for a period of years, was a win-win. Uh, you know, both, both prospered uh, as a result of it. Uh, but uh, as yet another little uh, side thing I had going on, uh, a few years after that, I saw neuroscience and marketing coming together. And there were certainly other people doing that. There were even a few early neuromarketing startups then, people who were uh, offering neuromarketing services saying, okay, we're going to take your uh, ad advertisement variations, your two commercials, and we're gonna measure people's brain activity. And <laughs> we'll tell you which one is gonna sell more stuff. Now, these early startups were either uh, sketchy or, just they didn't really have their science wasn't very solid at that point yeah. but uh, nevertheless uh, it was clear there was something uh, to work with there because up to that point advertisers were relying on focus groups on surveys yeah. they were asking people okay what um which ad did you like better did you like ad a better or b better <laughs> uh, you know and things like that which that really tells you nothing about uh you know what What's people really will actually do. Yeah. And even if you ask people, do you think you would buy after showing different groups, uh, people's ability to forecast their future purposes after seeing an ad purchases are really not very good. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. So I started writing about using these tools of neuroscience to improve advertising, improve marketing and so on, uh, improve market research. Uh, what I found though was, as I uh, wrote more, 
those articles where I talked more about applying behavioral science, uh, about tools that were accessible, not just to big brands like BMW or Coca-Cola, but accessible even to the smallest entrepreneurial startups where they could say, oh, okay, I understand the idea of scarcity, for example, uh, which is one of challenges that goes back to the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if I show that my product or service is a, a little bit scarce, then uh, more people will buy it. And, you know, these days we're used to that thinking, go to any travel website, go to Expedia or booking or something. You're going to see left. about 40, 47 scarcity queues. There's only two rooms left. 43 people are looking at this right now. And you booked in the last 24 hours. Yeah. My God, even you have only seconds left to book the room of your lifetime. Click that you know, buy uh, but, but, you know, these insights uh, a few years back uh, were, I mean, maybe not revolutionary, but they weren't widely known. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, that, I found that that content was getting more traction than how you could put people in a $5 million fMRI machine and see which ad they like better. Uh, so uh, that sort of steered my direction. And uh, ultimately, my blogging content and article content was sort of a mix of both skewing toward uh, the behavioral. And when Wiley approached me for a book, I really, uh, after I started off writing a book a little bit more geared to the neuromarketing and applied consumer neuroscience type stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I decided that that was going to be a very limited type thing. And, and uh, so I scrapped what I had and skewed much more in the direction of a uh, hundred short chapters uh, on different pieces of scientific research or scientific principles that anybody could apply and showed how they could apply that because I wasn't just coming at it from an academic perspective, but also from a hands-on uh, guy who uh, had multiple successful startups. Uh, so uh, that really resonated with people. And my first book was Brainfluence, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, uh, is actually, even though that came out in 2011, it is still continuing to sell. And it's not selling wildly now, but uh, every month I get sales. I just had a couple of new uh, different language translations uh, options. So uh, it shows that those ideas are no doubt a lot more enduring than uh, some of the sort of ephemeral uh, neuroscience ideas that, you know, what happened two years ago is old news now because of the technology has changed. There's new developments. Yeah. The Brainfluence, that was actually probably one of my favorite books. I mean, I still quote some of the, the different studies and things that you had talked about in there that it's like, I remember when I when I was listening to it, I was like, I had a multiple aha moments of like, oh, that's when the, oh, I remember that or hearing this or seeing this and oh, that's what they were doing. And it was one of those things that just kind of like, I, I had, it was so many times where I just, I looked at marketing differently because of that, because it's like now I, I was already a marketer. So I was always suspect of everything anyways, you know, because I'm like, oh, they're trying to do this and trying to figure out the end. Angle, but when when I read that, it really opened my mind. It was one of those things that I thought, God, that's really interesting. Like that is just next level stuff. Well, Shane, I'll, I'll take this in a slightly different direction. Do you mostly listen to books? You mentioned listening to books uh, several times. Is that your preferred consumption uh, medium? It is. It is. You know, I, I, and the funny part is I actually buy the books too. And my big goal was always to listen to them and to highlight it and do this. I, I, if I go to read a book, my issue is, is I, I don't think I have ADHD, but I'm pretty much self-diagnosed and say that I do. I look at other stuff and what I need to get done. So what I do is I listen to an audible book. I'll either jump in my car and I'll listen to it and we'll drive and charge and then come back. And so I've got time to do that. Or what I'll do is I'll just go on a walk or go work out. And then I listen to a book. So yeah, it's been audible has been the way for me to, to be able to retain information. Yeah. Well, that's, it's interesting. Uh, my challenge with, I, I like to listen to books too. Uh, the, 
the difficulty I have, of course, is that you can even, I often listen, say like 2X speed uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, it lets you finish a book faster, but a long book still takes quite a while to finish. Yeah. And for doing the podcast, uh, I have often have to consume a book a week for that. Uh, plus other books that I may not be doing a podcast about but that I want to consume because I think they're, they could be useful for me. Uh, so I end up having to do a lot of my reading on paper or occasionally on uh, Kindle. I tend to prefer paper, uh, but I do, I do like listening to audiobooks. But one challenge that I have, and I'm wondering if you've solved this, is uh, uh, taking notes or jotting stuff down. Because like if you're driving, you know, you can't really, I, I'm probably not going to jerk my car over the side of the road to write something down on a pad, nor am I going to even mess with the audible interface to try and bookmark something that I'll probably never find again. Uh, what's do you, have you found a good solution for that? Because I know that I have heard really interesting stuff on books that by the time I got back to my office or home that I've forgotten about and I'll never remember again. It's I'm telling you, so that is my my biggest. I guess that's my biggest challenge because what that's the reason why I actually would buy the book as well because I would say, listen, I can listen to it, I can be doing something, and if I hear something, I, I either can write it down or I can highlight it in the book and I'll look at it later. I I bought like I used to just buy double, and I just never ended up like doing that because I was doing other things. The only thing that has somewhat worked for me is that if I'm walking, if I'm not driving, if I'm walking, I'll have like notes on my phone that I'll pull up and I'll just take some notes and I'll say, or I'll put hey chapter two to this and I'll, I'll put a little note. The problem is I don't historically go back and look at it and go, cause you know, I've got everything else that goes on. I've got my team, I've got, you know, this. And so I, I like, what I realized was, is that there was probably six months that I wasn't listening to a lot of books because I was at a hard point of like, well, I, like, I, I want to like write this down. Like, I feel like I need to like write because it's, you know, important information. Like what, you know, I'm, and so what I realize now is what I'll do is I'll go through and just listen to it. Like the first time, just to like, kind of let it set in. And then if it was a great book and I feel like there's some things that I needed to, you know, that I need to apply or need to learn, then I would go and listen to it again. And then I'll take the notes on my phone. Because if I don't, then what happens is I listen and I go, okay, I got to remember that. So I pause the book and then I go to another book. Cause I got to go back to that one and write down something important. And I thought, you know what? I just got to get through it. I got to get through it and I'll just go through it again and take notes if I can. But I do one level of going through it, retaining, you know, as much as I can and then going through it again and taking notes. So that it's not a great solution, but that's like what I've done over the years. Yeah. The one thing that I found that kind of works, although I don't do it well enough, is uh, I actually put a little note app uh, on my uh, Android screen so mm -hmm. that I don't even have to open an app. I can just flip to... Uh, my second screen, or you could even put on your home screen, and I can just tap that and jot down a note. So, if I, like if I'm, say, on a treadmill walking, uh, not, not running, but walking at a pace where I can uh, uh, do something with my hands without falling off or killing myself, uh, <laughs> or if I'm walking on, uh, uh, you know, a street or sidewalk, uh, then I can take a very short note there just as a, to jog my memory because I figure that if I can even uh, make a three-word note that has a few keywords in it, like an author's name. Often it's like uh, they said that this study was done by a particular scientist or uh, they refer to a company that did something interesting. Yeah. Uh, just a few keywords uh, will be enough for me then to track that down either in the book or in Google. I've heard of some people, Shane, who buy all three versions of the book. They will listen to the audiobook. They'll have the paper book because they like the tangible aspect. Yeah. And they'll buy the Kindle version because it's searchable. 
And that's oh, one, wow. you know, I don't, I don't like uh, Kindle for consuming that much, except yeah. when I'm traveling. When I'm traveling, it's obviously great because you don't have to carry books with you. Yeah. But um, otherwise, I prefer paper. But the big advantage that it has, it's searchable. So that if you remember uh, that somewhere in this 350-page book, the author mentioned a particular place or mm. particular person or study or something, uh, you can find that without flipping through pages trying to remember, I think it was uh, you know, on this side of the page and halfway through. And uh, that, so that's really an advantage. And sometimes Google Books can serve that purpose too. Uh, it doesn't work for every book, but for books that are indexed in Google Books, sometimes you can track down uh, where something appears in a book and that will be a cue to uh, find out what you need to know. Now I'm going to end up buying the Kindle because now I can search it. So now every author is going to get me three times. I love it. I was actually, you know, I quit buying the paper stuff because I was like, man, other than supporting the author, because some of them I know, but it's, that makes sense. The Kindle thing is in it's searchable. Okay. That's now it's, now we've got an, another level of complexity. I'll, I'll figure Sorry. it out. Sorry about that, Shane. No worries. No worries. I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell my wife, hey, I get to start buying the Kindle version. She's just going to shake her head. Like, just like you did the paper version, uh, kind of the same, but different. Now it's actually searchable and I can find it. And on that note, Roger, allow me to pause our conversation for a minute to talk to our listeners. My team and I offer services such as content marketing, SEO, influencer marketing, online PR, and more. You can also contact us at shanebarker.com for digital marketing consulting services or fully managed services. Now back to our conversation with Roger. So what I wanted to talk to you about was because, I mean, obviously we've, we've heard you know, over the last probably 40 minutes, you just have such a rich history of what you've done. Um, and it's funny, I, you have this, for me, a history of like, you have a job and then at night you're doing some kind of passion. You're doing something that is maybe has nothing to do with your job, but it's like something else you're very interested in. So I can tell you're, you're very busy. One thing I wanted to talk to you about was you kind of talked about SEO, which obviously, and you're talking about driving, you know, 30 million people a month to that website. Talk to us a little bit about like the overall like user experience, right? Because we talk about obviously with with neuromarketing, the idea is, is to get people to do something, right? The idea is, is like, what do we do to, to what is a trigger point to get somebody to click and buy or, you know, download or something or do something. So talk to us a little bit about your experience with UX and what exactly and how that ties into neuromarketing. Right. Well, first of all, uh, I think that there's two aspects to look at you. And there is conversion, you know, acquiring mm -hmm. new customers. There's also loyalty. Now, for some businesses are not going to worry about loyalty very much because they have few repeat sales, not because yeah. they're bad, just the nature of the product or service they sell. Uh, their repeat sales are infrequent. But mm -hmm. for most companies, uh, they want to both get customers and keep customers. Often, uh, whether they are salespeople or sometimes performance marketers, they are most rewarded for acquiring new customers, yeah. the first time orders, because there's an assumption, well, once we've got them, we're going to keep them. Uh, but of course, that isn't true. Uh, and uh, so I spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, at conversion conferences, explaining some of the ideas in uh, Brainfluence, and how you can use those techniques uh, to get more customers. So I talked about scarcity, there are dozens, that's a powerful one, things like yeah. reciprocation, giving people something first, uh, and then them doing something for you in return, uh, authority, uh, having people who are authorities in their field say whatever you're selling is good, will help you sell your stuff. Um, uh, and so uh, one of the people that I encountered at a conference, uh, he was a fellow keynoter, was BJ Fogg. Uh, he is a researcher at Stanford who's famous for his fog behavior model. 
Uh, and he says you need three things if you want to create or change a behavior. Now, that could be getting somebody to uh, fill out a lead gen form. It could be placing an order. Uh, it could be placing a second or third order. It could be anything, but if, it could be forming a habit. Uh, but if you want to uh, create or change a behavior, uh, the person has to have motivation. They have mm -hmm. to want to do the behavior or they want the result of doing it. I don't like to diet, but I might like the result of dieting. Yeah. Uh, they uh, have to have uh, a prompt or a trigger. He started, he initially called it a trigger. Now it's a prompt, something to get the ball rolling. That could be a call to action on a website. It could be a pop-up ad. It could be a search ad on Google, a phone call, an email. All of these are prompts. And then finally, you have to have ability. With is probably the least obvious sounding one of his, but what it translates into is what you're asking them to do has to be easy. It has to not be difficult. Uh, it can't use too much effort because uh, the more effort it requires, the less likely it is that that'll happen. Uh, and that principle ties into what Daniel Kahneman says, uh, our Nobel Prize winner in behavioral economics. He says there is a law of least effort that applies to cognitive and physical exertion. Uh, and that uh, people are basically lazy. Uh, and, you know, if you don't allow for this in your marketing, uh, then you're making a huge mistake. Now, uh, the, the conference where I met BJ was a conversion conference. It was all about how to get people to fill out that lead gen form, how mm -hmm. to get people to click that buy button or confirm order button or whatever to complete the transaction and not abandon the shopping cart, uh, you know, partway <laughs> through the process. Uh, and uh, he, what he showed everybody was that uh, you have to increase the ability factor. You've got to take steps out of your process. Uh, you've got to do things for the customer. You know, don't ask them to fill out 10 fields if, if you can live with five or live with two. You know, whatever you can do to minimize that effort, maximize their ability, will get you more conversions. And of course, you can increase motivation. Uh, those uh, you know, if you say, we're going to give you free shipping, hey, that will, if you don't normally charge for, if you normally do charge for shipping, that will be motivation for people, but it's going to cost you a certain amount of money for every order that, you, uh, that gets placed. If you have a sale, that will increase your business. You will get more conversions, but it costs you money. Uh, so he says, don't focus on motivating people to do stuff. Focus on making that stuff easier to do. And ultimately, that led to me creating a little framework that I call the persuasion slide. Uh, and uh, it's uh, sort of a, it's based on BJ's work, but uh, it sort of puts things into context for marketers and tries to make them think about both conscious drivers and non-conscious drivers. In other words, in addition to conscious motivators like lower prices, free shipping, a bonus item, uh, non-conscious motivators that we already talked about, things like a scarcity, authority, social proof, and, and those sorts of motivators. Uh, and to be sure that as they're developing their marketing, they think about all of those. But that then led me to saying, you know, really of all of these things in the slide, the one that is the most operative is getting the customer down the slide, which if you've ever seen a kid get stuck halfway down a slide because <laughs> it's not slippery, yeah. that's because there's too much friction. And yeah. so that led to my focus on friction and uh, book. Yeah, probably uh, five, five years of research or something, but uh, it uh, culminated in my second book, Friction, that is all about uh, how to uh, get people to not only convert better, but to stay loyal. Uh, 
by making things easy for them. And, you know, there's such great case studies out there that are your customers already know about or your listeners and viewers already know about. Uh, you know, obviously, Amazon uh, had that focus from day one. Back in 1997, Jeff Bezos was talking about frictionless shopping. Uh, you know, everybody else was trying to figure out what this e-commerce thing was, uh, and he was already talking frictionless then. They patented one-click ordering. They spent millions of dollars to defend that patent. Uh, and people say, well, you know, look, all Barnes & Noble had to do and every other competitor was add a, one little click to their process. It had to be two-click ordering. Who cares about one click? But Amazon spent millions of dollars to defend it. Steve Jobs and Apple spent a million dollars to license one-click ordering from Amazon so they could save that one little click. Uh, you know, the smart people see the value of minimizing friction. Uh, and uh, the second piece is the loyalty aspect. You know, we don't devote enough time to that in general. I think that's been true for decades. People focus yeah. on getting new customers uh, and just say, well, we've we got to do a good job. We'll keep our current customers. It doesn't happen automatically. Gartner, the big market research company, uh, did some amazing work uh, on customer service interactions where people had to contact a company for some reason, <laughs> tech support, customer support, a return, a question about a product, something. Uh, and they looked at the effort that uh, whether people had a high effort or a low effort interaction, and they found that customers who had a high effort experience uh, were uh, about 10 times as likely to be disloyal to that company as mm -hmm. a customer that had a low effort experience. On the other hand, only 4% of the high effort customers said they'd buy again compared to 94% of the low effort customers. And you know, Shane, you know how important word of mouth is these days. Uh, people want reviews, they want ratings, they want to go to Yelp, they want to know what other people think before they make a decision. 88% uh, of the high effort customers said they would say bad things about the brand wow. compared to just 1% of the low effort customers. And this effort isn't an absolute standard of effort. It's in your customer's head. Yeah. Uh, if they think you're high effort, you are high effort. So they're not comparing you to your competitors even. Uh, they're comparing you to Amazon, to Uber, and other companies that they think are a very low effort process. And if you've got more effort than they do, uh, you know, you are high effort. And I, I still see so much of that today. Uh, and one area where this is playing out, I think pretty dramatically, is the banking and fintech space, hmm. where you've got sort of a graphic illustration of how uh, legacy uh, financial companies, in some cases, are getting crushed by upstart competitors. Uh, we just saw the... Uh, dominance uh, of Wall Street uh, yeah. in the last week or two. But uh, this, this, and even that may not be a great example because that was, that was just sort of a weird mob action, but it shows the traction that these easy to use uh, FinTech firms are getting. You know, uh, I had a, a simple transaction with a major financial company. Uh, I had a uh, really obsolete uh, uh, policy that I just needed to cash out. This is something that would, uh, uh, it was years and years old, uh, didn't any, need any more. Uh, and so I just went online saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to uh, you know, terminate this and cash it out, get rid of it. Uh, I couldn't do that. Uh, they, I had to download a form uh, that I could then uh, either fax to them or send them by uh, snail mail. Couldn't even email it to them. Uh, and okay, so I downloaded the form. Scan it in. I still have a scanner and I faxed it uh, electronically. Uh, uh, I don't have a real fax machine anymore. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, 
you know, the thing goes away for a while and then finally comes back. I get a thing in the mail that uh, was basically a similar form to the one I had sent in saying, you didn't do it right the first time. I don't know what I missed. I, I compared their form and my form and they looked about the same to me, but I must have forgotten to dot some I or something. Uh, so please, uh, you know, sign this and send it back in. Once again, uh, the only option was faxing or mail. This time I said, okay, I'm going to make sure they get it. So uh, I sent it uh, by uh, priority mail somehow. Uh, and again, a high friction experience. Uh, it took the post office about uh, eight days from the point I dropped it in the mailbox to actually scan it in and uh, get it on its way. Uh, so that by the time the company got it, uh, it was already past year end. I was hoping to get it closed out in the one fiscal year. It's like, this is driving me crazy. Believe it or not, then uh, I get another piece of mail from them saying, sorry, uh, the signature did not match the one we had on file that God knows when that signature was from, probably 25 years earlier. Would you please um, you know, get a notary to sign this uh, with you uh, so that we can verify that you're actually you. Uh, and I still haven't done it yet. This process has been going on for like a month and a half. I guarantee you uh, that if I had gone to one of these modern fintech firms, uh, I could have accomplished this transaction electronically yeah. uh, with, you know, uh, just a few emails, maybe DocuSign if necessary, you know, whatever it took uh, with no hassle at all. But this is why, uh, you know, companies that are not looking at their very, very most nimble com competitors are going to get crushed. Yeah, no, that's a great example. I, that kind of stuff, it's, you know, I always think, I, I always look at this and I go, are they doing this because they just don't want to do something or give me the money? Like I, I've argued with many companies and they say, well, we can't do that. And I said, no, you actually can. You're choosing not to. Like that, there's a difference here. You're making this extremely difficult and you maybe as customer service, you know, because you talk to people every day that this is a broken process. Like I, you, I don't need to explain that to you because this is my experience with it. And I'm telling you, that there is a lot easier experiences out there and you guys are making it difficult. And I mean, there's, you know, there's plenty of companies we could talk about and that where this has happened where I'm like, okay, this is like incredible that you guys are still around, but it's like, you make it so difficult to do something, especially if you're trying to get money or something like that, where some people just say, I just, you know, they're, I think they're what, what they're looking at potentially is like the fact that you're just going to drop the ball and not do it. You know, right. maybe, right. Like maybe well, we're exactly. just, Oh yeah. Well this, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, where else we see this a lot, not just, it's not just in financial companies. Uh, it's in internet service providers, legacy uh, ones. It is in wireless companies. It's in uh, that's exactly what uh, I was cable, thinking. Uh, cable TV companies, satellite companies. Uh, they have very similar processes where they make it as difficult as possible to get out. They yeah. entice you in with really cheap offers. Then they count on inertia. Uh, yeah. that you will forget Grind that you, you signed up for this 12 month expiring deal uh, that was costing you 50 bucks. And now it's going to jump to 120 bucks and you're not going to notice for a while. Uh, I mean, this is so counter customer uh, that, and then when you actually go to change it, you can't do it easily. You can't just jump online and uh, select a new plan. You've got to go through uh, voice Oops. menus. You've got to go through the first customer service representative who will then ultimately, if they fail to prevent you from canceling, uh, they will then refer you to a second retention specialist who will uh, redouble their efforts. Uh, and, you know, this is, you know, to me, I visualize uh, anything I encounter like this 
as sort of a dial. Imagine like a, a, a meter, like the old analog meters that you had on your, in your car, like your, your speedometer something where it's either this is good for the customer or good for the company. Now, occasionally you get a win-win, yeah. right? Uh, sometimes you improve a process and it's, hey, it saves the company money and it's great for the customer. But often you see processes like these that benefit the company because you're right, Shane, they do risk, reduce cancellations. They do reduce, reduce people who uh, say cash in a policy, take their money out of their bank account or something because of the difficulty. People forget about it. Do they say, well, I'll do that tomorrow. And before yeah. I know it, like a month has gone by. I don't want to deal and, with it. Right, yeah, and, it, and it's a hassle. So they know that works, uh, but nevertheless, uh, they do that even though it's not good for the customer. And often this penalizes the customer. Uh, I, I mentioned internet service providers. Uh, I had signed up for a faster plan at some point uh, and never really checked my speed. My speed would seem to be adequate, uh, but I was doing some, like a, maybe a year later, I was doing some network improvements. I was putting in a new router and moving my routers around. So I said, okay, I'm gonna check my speed all around uh, different parts of my house and office. And uh, I was, found that I was maxing out uh, at way less than I was paying for. Uh, and so first I had a horrendous experience finding out what I was paying for. I said, I think I'm paying for 200, but I'm just gonna jump on and check. I ended up having to spend uh, 20 minutes uh, in a web chat uh, with a customer service rep and having to track down uh, a four digit code from a billing statement in order to find out from the rep what service I was paying for. She couldn't just tell me you're on plan X, probably because plan X was secret, uh, you know, it was uh, like for stupid people or something. Uh, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, we, we got this guy on plan X, we don't want him to know he's on plan X. Uh, so anyway, uh, finally she tells me, yeah, you're on 200, uh, so I go back and I start checking my network, even at the head end, I'm only getting half that. So I call up tech support. Okay, I got a problem. They say, oh yeah, uh, your modem can't handle uh, that speed. Well, it's not my modem. You it's gave me modem. the modem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that I'm paying you some ridiculous price, paying like 10 bucks a month for a modem that won't handle what they said. Now, you know, the ethical, the correct thing would have been to say, Roger, by the way, uh, thanks for upgrading your account we see that you've got this modem that's not going to handle that speed uh so uh, we are going to ship you a new one uh and you're going to continue paying 10 bucks but uh, you can change it out and you know recycle the old one or send it back to us or you know whatever however they want to deal with it uh do they do that no in fact uh, oh there's there, i read an article about this uh, i think it was written maybe by bloomberg or cnbc or somebody one of the business networks and uh, when the reporter was writing about this stuff, she checked her own cable bill and found out that there was a $5 a month charge on there for something that was included in her base package. She called him up and said, oh, yeah, we can remove that. It's in your base package. But, you know, no they no were refund. willing to let it ride as long as they could. And to me, uh, this is what uh, UX experts call a dark pattern, you know, where you rely on customer inertia, customer lack of knowledge uh, to take advantage of them, you know, where they are paying for something uh, that they are not getting or that they don't need to pay for. Uh, and you know it and they don't. And, you know, to me, that is why these companies, as soon as they get competition, are in big trouble. Well, and you have to realize like that, that $5 charge, because we had a similar situation with my mom and with my stuff. And that $5 charge that you're not looking at, 
your five five dollar charge times ten million people, that's fifty million dollars, right? And those and then you get somebody that comes in and wants to complain. You're like, oh, sorry, we'll take that off for five bucks. Well, what about the last five years you've been charging me that? Like, it's not the two hundred dollars. It's the fact that you guys took advantage of me, or you can't tell me what that fee is for, or it was already in my plan. Yeah, there was an issue. And it's like, why am I, why am I, you know, and it's like, what happens is you go, well, for five bucks, who cares? I, you know, it's just whatever it is, what it is. Like you look at your bill and like, I'm not going to call it about $3. Cause that'll take me six hours and it's not worth right. my time. And I'll just go ahead and pay the extra five bucks. And that's what I think they're planning on. So anyways, we could go on. When you started talking about cable and I was like, I'm thinking I like 10 examples, <laughs> like literally of my own where I'm looking at this and going, and I'm talking to people and I'm like, listen, I know you're just customer service, but you know, in your heart that this is a problem. Like, you know, you're going to give me the runaround. You guys can keep my 80 bucks or whatever it is. It's not that it's the point that you guys aren't doing the right thing. And you know that, and I understand you don't have the power to go higher, but I'm telling you, tell your manager that this is continue to be a problem and you're going to hate your job. Cause you're going to get more people that call up like me and that are going to be telling you, Hey, this sucks. And you shouldn't be doing this. And you're taking advantage of people and you're going to be taking punches while everybody else counts the money. But yeah, anyways. Well, yeah. Uh, Shane, I'll, I'll give you one more lesson. I think that uh, is important for our audience here. Uh, and that is, you know, you mentioned uh, the customer service rep, the telephone mm -hmm. rep, the chat rep, uh, and uh, they are, I think often victims as much as the customers are. For sure. Most of the time, uh, they have tried to help. Uh, they've been courteous. Uh, they've, uh, within the constraints of the company, yeah. uh, they have, I've, I've run a few exceptions, but most of them have really done the best they could uh, to try and help me solve my problem or fix whatever it was I needed fixing. Uh, but it's the companies uh, that put them in the position they're in. Oh, yeah. And in fact, uh, uh, that one, you know, that horrible chat experience that I had, that was an absolute waste of time uh, for me and for something that should never have even required a chat interaction. It should yeah. have been available to me once I was logged in. Uh, and, uh, you know, after afterwards, they did one of these things, would you like to complete a survey about your experience? And I, I never do those, uh, you know, there's, who's got time for that? But yeah. I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I want to tell them about my experience. At this point, I was so aggravated. Yeah. <laughs> and I figured it's, it's going to be something like net promoter score. You know, would you recommend us uh, to somebody else? To your and, you know, friends. if there was like a minus one for hell no, never, uh, you know, <laughs> you'd have to uh, kill me first. Click it twice. Uh, yeah, you know, then uh, I, I, that's what I was going to click. Instead, you know what they did? They asked me, would you deal with this customer service representative again? Was your customer service rep courteous? Uh, uh, there were like two questions about the rep, all about, uh, it was sort of like a net promoter score for the human that you interacted with. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, was she courteous? Uh, and then finally, they gave me a thousand characters to talk about the customer service rep and anything that she did right or wrong that I wanted to comment on. Oh my God. Never Hands are ever tied. It's terrible. Yeah, you know, they so they throw the human, their per, their own person under the bus because I'm sure a lot of people just say, Yeah, she was horrible. So aggravated she's by the just company. Following policy. Like it's like, yeah, what right, is she yeah, That's not her fault. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh it's crazy. But I think the reason they don't ask is because the people that the marketing managers that create those surveys, they know what the answers would be, be bad. they don't they don't want their ceo to see those answers you know what's our net promoter score this month after people talk to our customer service reps you know well it's actually three out of ten you know <laughs> they they know it's going to be horrible so instead they ask these other innocuous questions where they can say hey people like they like our people pretty well we've had a few low rated ones we got rid of those so we're, we're getting better
Yeah, you're uh, that is and that's what I always tell the person that's that's helping me like listen, I I you know, I I would like to think that you're helping me as much as you can, so I'm not trying not to give you too much of a hard time because your hands are tied, but this is bad. Like and you know it's bad. Like you you're you know and and no one's can you're just the front line. I know saying I'm not going to be able to get in the castle anyways and you're that I'm I'm not here to to kill the messenger, but but this is bad. Well, Roger, I'm telling you, man, this has been this has been awesome. I feel like I could talk to you for like 10 more hours and like I should be taking notes as we talk. What I know you you obviously listen to a lot of or you know read a lot of books. Can you give us like what is one of your favorite books? Because I know that you you're talking about reading a book a week, which is just an insane level. Are there any is there any book like that you've read recently? I mean, other obviously than Friction, than your stuff that's absolutely amazing. Is there a book that that you could recommend anybody? I'm just kind of thinking that like, like help maybe share yeah, your career. Yeah, okay. I, you know there there are so many that I could re- recommend, Jane, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know so many. Uh, authors that I know personally that I would love to recommend in their books, but I'm going to just mention one that did not necessarily get a lot of acclaim when it came out, but to me has some great lessons in it for businesses of any size, uh, and that is Trust Factor by Paul Zak. Uh, he is the oxytocin researcher that discovered uh, the hug hormone, oxytocin. He didn't discover the hormone, but he found that it was the hormone of human trust. and. Uh, what he and his team did was some research on high-performing companies, and they went into a variety of companies, high-performing companies and low-performing companies, and they did a bunch of employee surveys to ask about employee attitudes and, among other things, about trust between employees and each other, employees and their boss, employees and the company, and they also took thousands of blood samples, and what they Uh found was that high-trust companies were high-performing companies, and this wasn't just what they found in the surveys. Those surveys correlated with the blood samples. The higher performing companies had higher levels of oxytocin in the blood of their people. So, you know, to me, uh, this is uh, a finding that can't be uh, overlooked. Yeah. You know, it's it's not something that's soft or squishy or fluffy. Where yeah, people like where they work, so they say they trust the people. Uh, there, it was actually you know greater trust in these companies, and so that when you can implement policies that show you trust your people more, uh, they will trust you more. And this doesn't matter if you are a five person company uh, or you know a uh, 500,000 person company. Admittedly, big companies tend to have more processes and more procedures because uh, one time somebody screws up, they do something wrong. And so now you put a procedure in place to make sure that nobody can ever do it wrong again, uh, not realizing the effort that's wasted for all the people that would do it right and even the minimal cost if once in a while somebody does do it wrong, you know it's not going to crater the company. Uh, yeah. And you know when you when you can look at things in that from that context of if I trust people a little bit here, what's the downside for me? Is it bad? Like you know a bank uh, couldn't say, well we're going to do away with our safe and we're going to put our money on the counter and let people you know just uh, keep track of their own stuff. Uh, that that definitely would not work. That's a little too much trust. But you know if oh uh, you know look look at Amazon. When I return something to Amazon, maybe I take it back to a locker or back to UPS. Most of the time, when I get back to my home or office, by the time I check my email, they have credited my account for my return. Incredible. Because they saw that, okay, Roger dropped that box in there. Now, they don't know what's in it. It could be empty. I could have put a brick in it. Uh, The product could be mangled beyond belief where I said that it was in good condition. You know, they don't know that, but they trust me because... They know that uh, a 
I have proved myself to be relatively trustworthy in the past, according to their <laughs> algorithm, I'm sure. Uh, and that, uh, uh, you know, even if for some reason I did decide to be uh, dishonest on that one occasion, it wasn't going to affect their bottom line that much. So it was an acceptable risk for them. Probably uh, if, you know, I was returning a, uh, you know, $5,000 big screen TV or something, they might want to see the thing before uh, they credited my account. But, you know, by trusting people, they increase trust. This is one big reason, Shane, why Amazon is such a trusted brand. They yeah. trust the people that are dealing with them and that trust is reciprocated. And it shows in their actions, right? I mean, that's, and that's, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. I know that I've returned stuff and I'm like, I, they already put money in my account. And that's insane to me. Like the fact that but that was based off of that was the the foundation of the company. That's why I bought Zappos. And that's why, you know, the customer service has been a big thing for them. So Roger, if, if anybody wants to get in contact with you, I am going to um, and put in the show notes. I'm going to put your books in there. I think it's that important to, to have those in there so people can be able to purchase those books. We'll also put the trust factor down there, but if anybody wants to get in contact with you, how can they do that? Uh, the best jumping off point is rogerdooley.com. That's where I have my podcast. I've got links to my social accounts there and uh, other stuff. Uh, neurosciencemarketing.com is my uh, older site where my neuromarketing blog is located. Uh, and on social, I am most active on LinkedIn and Twitter and Roger or Roger Dooley. Pretty much I am those things uh, on all social media. Uh, but those places are where I'm most active. So I look forward to connecting with people. I do enjoy uh, connecting with folks and continuing the conversation that we've started here. Absolutely. Roger, hey, once again, thank you for taking the time out of your day today. This was an awesome, awesome podcast. Um, and we're looking forward to maybe chatting with you again in the future. Well, I hope so, Shane. It's been a lot of fun. Time really flew. Yes, it did. Thanks, Roger. Thanks, Roger, for your great insights on neuromarketing. I hope our listeners now know how to apply it to their marketing campaigns. Once again, thanks for taking the time for this episode. That's the end of this week's podcast episode. Stay tuned to the Marketing Growth Podcast because next week we'll host another thought leader in the growth marketing industry.